Hello and welcome to this week's podcast edition of Scripps 5 Must Know Things. This time for the business week ended 4th November 2022. This is Ian Haydock. This week, Pfizer's COVID transition, Lily Ramsap Munjaro on strong demand, Pfizer's R&D head reflects on pandemic experiences, passing Novartis's Q3 and China's progress with mRNA vaccines. Pfizer is preparing for the transition of its COVID-19 vaccine and treatment business into what will eventually be a more typical flu-like volume. But CEO Albert Baller said the franchise will remain multi-billion dollar for a number of years. Management updated investors on the outlook for the COVID-19 business during the company's third quarter sales and earnings call on 1st November, Jessica Merrill writes. Pfizer's vaccine, Comirnaty, which it shares profits on with partner BioNTech and its wholly owned oral antiviral, Paxlovid, have been a mega-sized windfall for Pfizer in 2021 and 2022. But revenues for the franchise are expected to eventually normalise as the disease burden associated with SARS-CoV-2 virus becomes more manageable. We expect 2023 will be a transition year, with likely the US moving from a government model into a commercial model for vaccines and therapeutics, CEO Baller told investors. But the timing remains uncertain and the commercial transition is expected to be phased in over the next year, when the company has already guided that it will raise the price of the vaccine to 110 to 130 US dollars to suit the commercial market and anticipated lower volumes. There will be some stock that will have to be depleted in 2023, and clearly there will be new price dynamics as we are moving to 23, so COVID will be a little bit more of a transitional year in 23 until it will be established into more like a flu volumes type of market, he added. Given that COVID is expected to remain a serious risk globally and the increased prices, the COVID business is expected to remain a multi-billion dollar business, and Pfizer said it would provide investors with more detailed expectations when it outlines 2023 financial guidance. The company is already facing a challenging comparison in the third quarter of 2022 against the unprecedented revenue from Comirnaty in the same period of last year. Revenues declined 6% in the third quarter overall to $22.6 billion, with 4% of the negative decline driven by currency. Sales of Comirnaty declined 66% in the quarter to $4.4 billion, but $7.5 billion in sales of Paxlovid helped make up that gap since the oral antiviral was not available last year. But the revenue still surpassed analyst consensus estimates, and Pfizer raised its revenue guidance for Comirnaty for the year by $2 billion to $34 billion, and reaffirmed guidance for Paxlovid of $22 billion. Analysts were encouraged by the strong third-quarter financial results, but still remain cautious about the long-term outlook due to challenging comparisons related to COVID-19 and some important brands losing exclusivity later in the decade, including Eliquis and iBrands. Launch metrics for Eli Lilly's GIP-GLP-1 analogue, Munjaro, in type 2 diabetes, are exceeding expectations to this point, and the company reported during its first November earnings call that commercial coverage in the US increased significantly during the third quarter. Perhaps mindful of the supply issues faced by competitor Novo Nordisk with Ozempic Wagovi, Lilly is trying to prepare for high demand for the product, 
in two major indications ahead of the planned submission for obesity in 2023, Joseph Haas writes. Munjaran launched during the second quarter and brought in $187.3 million during Q3, including $90 million in revenue sharing from Japanese partner Mitsubishi Tanabe Pharma, and substantially beat consensus estimates. Chief Financial Officer Anat Ashkenazi pointed out that the launch is not cannibalising Lilly's current top seller for diabetes, Trulisti, as nearly 70% of patient starts on Munjaro were in type 2 diabetes patients naive to injectable incretin therapy, with less than 10% switched over from Trulisti. Noting unprecedented demand in the Munjaro diabetes launch, Ashkenazi warned of potential short-term supply issues for the drug but cited manufacturing expansion efforts by Lilly that will bolster its ability to produce both the recently launched product and Trulisti. The issue of manufacturing supply is made greater by the potential for near-term approval of Munjaro in obesity, where it would also compete directly with Novo's GLP-1 analogue semaglutide. Lilly is compiling a rolling submission to the US FDA based on data from the Phase 3 SAMANT-1 trial, and data are expected from a second pivotal study, SAMANT-2, early in 2023. Chief Medical Officer Daniel Skowronski told the call that completion of the rolling NDA by April could mean approval of Munjaro for obesity before the end of 2023. During a quarter in which Lilly's global revenue increased just 2%, executives touted the potential of the farmer's near-term pipeline. In addition to Munjaro for obesity, this includes the amyloid clearing denanimab for Alzheimer's disease and the recently filed interleukin-13 receptor inhibitor lebrikizumab for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. Turning back to Pfizer for President Worldwide R&D, Mikhail Dolston, the experience of overseeing the development of the COVID-19 vaccine Comirnaty in partnership with BioNTech and the antiviral Paxlovid had been unlike any other experience in his 13-year career leading the R&D team at the company. Dolston sat down with Scripps Jessica Merrill at the Gallien Foundation's Pre-Gallien USA Forum in New York on 26th October, and in this first part of a two-part interview reflected on the experience and the remaining challenges and opportunities when it comes to the evolving SARS-CoV-2 virus. Dawson stood out early in the pandemic for publicly outlining an aggressive vaccine's development timeline and a goal to make a COVID-19 vaccine available for an emergency use authorization in late October of 2020. A timeline that seemed ambitious at the time given traditional vaccine development timelines, but ultimately slipped by only a few weeks. A key part of that process was deciding quickly to move forward with a novel mRNA technology developed by BioNTech. It was a very special moment, one of those life-changing moments, Thorson said, of when the vaccine was found to be more than 90% effective at preventing infection. The interim Phase 3 data released in November 2020 were arguably the most widely watched clinical trial data in history. It was a moment of hope, of fear, curiosity, of optimism, but cautiousness because you can believe in your science, but until you open the code to the trials, you never know, Dolson said. At the same time, he felt a weight on his shoulders from what it would mean for the world if the clinical trial data were actually disappointing. It was really a feeling of, if this wouldn't work, what a despair we all would be in. Humanity, society, he said. 
The work on the COVID-19 front is far from over and Pfizer continues to recognise the threat that exists, he stressed. We are committed to continue to make sure our vaccine is as close as possible to the most dominant circulating variants, Dalston said. Pfizer also tests Paxlovid against every new variant to make sure it stays therapeutically active, which it has thus far, and has also initiated clinical testing for next-generation antivirals. On top of that, we need to be prepared that there may come new viral pandemic-like threats, whether more distant relatives to SARS-CoV-2 or maybe even other viruses, he added. We always need to continue. Science must go on. Novartis's third-quarter earnings announcement was perplexing, analyst Andy Smith writes in his Stockwatch opinion piece. The release noted Novartis maintaining growth momentum, and the conference call suggested the delivery of a solid quarter-three performance. But this was at odds with a nearly 4% year-on-year fall in reported sales. Revenues also missed analysts' consensus estimates by 2%, and analysts at JP Morgan noted that sales were affected by weakness in key brands. Smith writes he found himself in agreement with the JPM analysts, who expected Novartis's stock to underperform by 2% today, and therefore was bemused as Novartis's stock rose in early trading in Switzerland, to finish the day only very modestly down, while it finished up by just over 1% in the US. The more drilling down I did, Smith writes, the more divergent I found Novartis' results to be from its upbeat commentary and stock by strength, and the more apt the note from the analyst at Bernstein, which was entitled, Not the Most Compelling Mix. Novartis' innovative medicine sales fell by just over 3% on the third quarter of 2021, when sales at the soon-to-be-divested generics division Sandoz fell by nearly 7% compared with the same period last year. Novartis' Innovative Medicines division's sales missed analysts' estimates by 2%, whereas Sandals' were in line. Like Roche, which saw an even bigger third-quarter sales decline and missed on consensus expectations, but unlike Johnson & Johnson, which raised its guidance the previous week, Novartis reiterated its full-year financial guidance. However, this was a confusing zero-sum game, as the sales guidance for Innovative Medicines was maintained while that for Sandoz was raised, Smith writes. This may have been due to Novartis's expectations for the expansion of generic competition to its third biggest seller, Gilenia for multiple sclerosis, from the EU to the US, where previous guidance had not assumed generic competition in 2022. But in Smith's view, Novartis's Q3 will be most notable for the shockwaves it will have sent to companies developing gene and cellular therapies. Sales of CAR-T therapy Kimraya and gene therapy Zolgensma fell by just over 8% and 15% respectively. But it was Novartis' use of the phrase shifted to an incident population on Zolgensma that should be unpalatable to any company developing an innovative therapy for a rare or inherited disease, Smith writes. While potentially curative, high-priced one-off therapies are generally supported by payers, Once most of the initial bolus of a prevalent population is identified and treated, finding new patients will get harder and more expensive. The cost of goods of CAR-T and other cellular therapies is very high, and an inability to scale by increasing patient numbers may thwart profitability in small patient populations, 
as rare disease company Alnylam Pharmaceuticals has found, Smith noted. Finally, China's biotechs are stepping up efforts to develop messenger RNA COVID-19 vaccines that target the Omicron variant, especially as a booster shot, given that 31% of fully vaccinated people in the country have yet to receive a booster jab, Dexter Yan writes. Zhejiang Haichang Biotechnology joined a plethora of domestic companies progressing vaccines by announcing its multivariant targeting mRNA candidate, HC009, had been granted a green light by the US FDA to move into clinical trials for booster use. Haichang will become the first Chinese firm to clinically evaluate an mRNA candidate for COVID in the US. The vaccine, which uses a proprietary QT-zone lipid-based delivery system, is being co-developed with Beijing Syngentech. Other Chinese bioventures are also pushing ahead with similar mRNA COVID-19 vaccine programs. On 19th October, Hong Kong-listed Everest Medicines said it had made significant progress completing a clinical-scale technology transfer for its mRNA candidate, PTX COVID-19B which is the subject of an in-licensing deal forged with Canadian biotech Providence Therapeutics in September 2021. Progress was disclosed as Providence reported positive top-line non-inferiority data from a 565-patient Phase two study evaluating PTX COVID-19B versus Pfizer and BioNTech's mRNA vaccine Comirnaty. The company now intends to initiate a Phase three trial in the booster setting, Additionally, Everest is currently submitting an IND application for a Phase 3 trial to evaluate its vaccine in the booster setting. An IND for the Omicron-targeting bivalent booster shot, EVA-COVID-19 M1.2, is planned in the second half in China. Meanwhile, Abigen, the frontrunner in the mRNA COVID-19 vaccine space in China, announced on 10th October it had completed a 60-patient Phase 1 study with its variant targeting candidates ABO1009DP and ABOCOV.617.2 in unimmunized Indonesian subjects, according to data from Sightline's trial trove. Separately, Abigen recently completed enrollment for a Phase 1-2 trial with ABO1009DP for use in sequential immunization programs. In general, Chinese COVID vaccine developers are continuing to pin their hopes for commercial success on the vast number of people in China who have not yet received a booster. According to official data, the figure is roughly 400 million, accounting for 31% of the fully vaccinated people in the country as of 12th October. Among other Chinese COVID vaccines, CanSinoBiologics launched in Shanghai on 25th October its inhaled version of its adenovirus-based vaccine, Combidicia Air, as a booster. That's all for this week. Many thanks for listening. And a reminder that these stories in full are linked in the free access article accompanying this podcast. Log in to view all of our much more extensive content or take a free trial to see what you're missing. Bye for now.